This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Bridget Wierty, author of Digital Codicology, Medieval Books and Modern Labor, published by Stanford University Press in November 2022. Digital Codicology reflects on the fact that medieval manuscripts are shared inheritance, and today they're more accessible than ever, thanks to digital copies online. Yet for all of that widespread digitization has fundamentally transformed how we connect with the medieval past, we understand very little about what these digital objects are. We rarely consider how they're made or who makes them. This book demystifies digitization, revealing what it's like to remake medieval books online and connecting modern digital manuscripts to their much longer media history, from print to photography to the rise of the internet. Ultimately, this book argues that centering the modern labor and laborers at the heart of digital cultural heritage fosters a more just and more rigorous future for medieval manuscript and media studies. Bridget Werty is an assistant professor at Binghamton University and a former Council on Library and Information Resources postdoctoral fellow in data curation for medieval studies. Bridget, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. Um, I'm excited to talk about this book. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, you, you talked in the introduction about the real differences you see between digital and physical iterations of medieval manuscripts. So could you start off by sharing how you articulate those differences and then really what your goals were for writing about digital codicology as its own practice? Sure. Um, yeah, so the classic differences between sort of working with a hard copy or analog book um, versus its sort of digital copy, um, they tend to really focus in on all of the sensory experiences of being in the room and interacting with this rare book. Um, you know, what it smells like, what it feels like to turn the pages, how they sound. Um, and this sort of, I mean, kind of underlaying all of these like objective-ish descriptions of details, it's really this kind of like weirdly intimidating, but also kind of ecstatic and intimate feeling of of touching this really old thing um, that all of these people before you have have touched and maybe loved. Um, And those are real things. Like, I don't deny them. Um, The first time I went to the Library of Congress, I touched the Lincoln Bible and like burst into tears because I was so emotionally overwhelmed by the weight of history. Um, There is something really special about books as physical objects. Um, But just because they have their own kind of auras, for lack of a better term, doesn't mean that digital books don't also have those. Um, And a lot of the conversation had sort of pitted the sort of special aura of the real i.e. physical hard copy book, against the sort of like nothingness of the digital. And that just felt really profoundly wrong to me. 
Um, and the more I worked at it, the more I thought about it. For me, that kind of special aura of the digital copy comes from the exact same place as the physical copy, the analog copy, and that's who made it and where and why and how. Um, so for me, digital codecology is just the logical extension of the history of the book on hard copy objects. It's who are the human networks that have supported the creation and care of this thing? Who are the real people who've done this work? And how does that work help us understand them, help us understand the book, help us understand sort of who we are all together as humans muddling along across the centuries? Absolutely. Kind of like grounding these digital things that we maybe talk about as abstract, abstract objects. Um, and you actually talk a little bit about this techno-utopianism that often befalls digital humanities or just the study of digitization. Um, so how do you propose that, you know, bringing in this insight of labor and purpose and, and limitations of bookmaking can be a corrective? Sure. Um, so one of the things, again, that you see in a lot of conversations about digital humanities projects about digitization um, is this like wonderful excitement um, that, you know, we can make these books accessible broadly for the very first time. Um, and, and I do love that. And I honestly feel that, you know, I did a, a two-year postdoc on a big digitization um, project. And, you know, I write about that off and on in the book. Um, and I love these things. I mean, I grew up in Montana, uh, which is not known for its like urban centers of manuscript study. It didn't even occur to me that I could touch medieval books. I didn't think people like me did that. Um, so, you know, I, I get the like, oh my God, these books are here and we can put them online and make them accessible thing. Um, but there are still always limitations and there are always compromises. Um, and I feel like thinking about the labor that has gone into making those compromises, the expert considerations, the people, um, helps us move away from kind of knee-jerk, cranky consumer responses, like, ugh, why isn't this what I want it to be, um, to kind of think about it more for the very sort of particular limits and social structures that made it look the way it is now. Um, we do that with old manuscripts. Like we can look at it and say, oh, William Wilfleet was in a really big hurry and that's why he didn't bother to do all of these things. And we can value that. Um, and I just want us to be able to learn how to see those signs of labor um, and human intelligence and effort in these beautiful digital copies, um, in which, ironically, um, a lot of effort is put into kind of erasing those signs of human presence. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And I know we will talk more about that. Um, I, I mean, I really appreciate that, like that personal connection also of thinking like, um, People, people like us can touch these old books. Um, and you really had this personal approach in the first chapter uh, where you wrote an autoethnography of a manu manuscript digitization project. And that really struck me because I thought I don't read a lot of autoethnographies of digitization. So I just appreciated that as a method. Um, but you argued that digitization 
isn't a radical departure from medieval bookmaking, but instead a, a return to preprint copy cultures. Um, so I'd love if you could sh- if you could share if you want to share more about um, that project in general, but also the parallels you discovered by taking part in the work and uh, why those parallels matter, why it matters to make note of them, and why that frame of reference is helpful for how we think about uh, manuscript manuscript digitization. Sure. Um, yeah. I so I I kind of begged my way into being involved in the digitization of a single. 15th century prayer book um, in 2014 during my postdoc because I was working with all this metadata and it all felt very abstract. Um, and I was working with these images on my screen, but I just felt like I really didn't understand how they got there. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say that my training as a literary literary historian and medievalist definitely influenced what I noticed when I went into the digitization studio. Um, but it was just this really kind of remarkable thing. I'd, I'd just been working on this 15th century English poet named Thomas Hockleave, who was also a professional scribe, um, during his day job. And in his poems, he writes these like brief complaints about how hard it is to be a scribe. Um, and like your eyes hurt because the pages are so white and like your hands hurt and your back gets really sore and your stomach hurts from all the crouching. And like after crouching that long, it's really hard to stand up straight again. And so these were sort of echoing in my ears anyway. And then I went in to, um, work as the assistant for Astrid J. Smith, who's the uh, rare book digitization or rare and fragile materials, digital imaging specialist at Stanford. Um, and all of a sudden I was doing all of this bending and I was like, oh, wow, my back actually really does hurt. Hockley wasn't just whining. Like, this is a thing. Um, my feet really hurt from standing on the floor this long. Um, I kept not blinking at the right time. And so I would get like flash images in my eyes and in the back of my head, I'd hear Thomas being like, my eyes are really bad from staring at gleaming parchment. Um, and then I think kind of more broadly, one of the things that I realized doing that is that, you know, there are these lines in Hockley where he talks about people who don't know what it is to be a scribe think it's easy. Um, They think it's just a game. It's light, it's quick, it's pleasurable. But for those of us who are really experts in it, it's really difficult. It's intellectually and physically taxing. Um, And doing that work with Astrid, seeing how much thought she put into absolutely everything. Um, The intense mental focus on details that didn't even occur to me to notice. um, That really kind of hit home for me. And then from there, it's like, oh, well, medieval scribes, if they're doing a really well-designed book, plan out how many lines per page and how many columns, and they plan where the illuminated initials need to go and where the miniatures will be, and everything is sort of sketched out and planned before people sit down and start writing. And in the um, kind of benchmarking stages of digitization, it felt the same, like everything is being measured and planned, and there are differences like Medieval scribes didn't have file naming conventions, and that's really important for digitization. But the echoes were there. And okay, sure, the first part of realizing this was just like, oh my God, this is really fun. How cool. Um, 
But more broadly, I think it's important to see these things because it's so easy to treat like the digital as this sharp break from everything that came before. Um, And it's easy to kind of treat the medieval period as this backward, dark otherware against which we measure all of the shiny goodness of modernity. But there are ways that making a new digital copy, it's different from any other copy you might make of that book. Um, And when you copy it again, you'll change it. And every digitization is a little bit different. And okay, the early print historians will yell at me for this, but I'm going to say that's not like print. Um, Print, especially industrial print, is really good at making copies that look exactly the same. The only thing that kind of has that sort of weird flexibility um, of copying, where every copy is changed and different and new, are pre-print or non-print things like manuscripts. So there's the pleasure of the connection, but there's also like the intellectual usefulness. Like medieval people understand fluid textuality and copying and changing in ways that those of us who grew up with like Xerox machines kind of don't. So we can use them. Yeah, absolutely. We can, we can like better appreciate the work that's being done um, in in the labor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. I'm giving you these really long answers just because like, I love all of this and it's like my passionate special interest. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you. This is, um, this is really fascinating. And I'm just thinking of, um, all of the conversations I have about digitization with folks who are like, why don't you digitize everyone? And, um, you know, I, I can just have them sit down and read this book. Um, so then in, in your second chapter um, called Value and Visibility, you focus on actually one manuscript, but a variety of copying projects, or as you know, in some instances, in some instances, not copying that manuscript choices that are made to copy or not copy it through this lineage of how the manuscript has been valued over time. Um, and you then demonstrate for us how copying, including digitization for different purposes, illustrates how the copying work values different audiences or end goals at different times. I love this expression that you used of value as a continuum. And I would love if you could talk more about that and how a single manuscript might fall in different places on the continuum at different points in time um, and what that means for whether we copy it, digitize it or not. Yeah, thank you. Um, sure, I'd love to. This was this was probably the hardest chapter to write. Um, there's a reason that most people do a book to do this kind of work and not a 60-page chapter. Um, but th- what I kind of latched onto actually is a manuscript that is by that 15th century poet, Hockleaf, who is in my head. Um, and it's a collection that he made of poems he'd written elsewhere and earlier, but he kind of gathers them together in the early 1420s into this single book. And um, it, I ended up deciding to follow it across um, um, early movable type print, sort of more industrial late 19th century print, the rise of photography, um, the rise of digitization, sort of try to sort of see what we get um, and what, 
what I noticed um, uh, is sort of, again, kind of an interesting pushback on one of the things we say about digitization, which is like, you know, now everything is available or, well, why don't you just digitize everything? Um, and, you know, the answers for why don't you digitize everything are like, well, cost and money. And does is there actually an audience for it? Like, is this just a one person project? Like, is this something that you, Bridget Wardy, are obsessed with? Or is there actually like a critical mass of people who will use and love and benefit from this? Um, and it was really interesting to trace these copies because I saw the same kind of calculus being played out like um, and oftentimes what we're seeing is um, you know a new form of copying technology emerges and like this book just isn't considered important enough for a really long time um, you know print comes movable type print comes to England in the um, 1470s um, and Caxton the earliest great English printer copies Jeffrey Chaucer, John Lydgate, like Hockleave's contemporaries. And he doesn't do Hockleave. Hockleave just, and he certainly doesn't do this weird little collection of poems. Um, so, you know, with digitization or with print, we say these things like, oh, these books that have been locked away suddenly are all available. And it's like, well, some of the books by the really famous people who we already had lots of copies of. Um, so it became a way of kind of thinking about, you know, canon formation, who's valuable enough to go in, how we think about those things. Um, in, in the first chapter of my book, I write a little bit about how when we digitize something, we're saying it's valuable. But that's a really hard thing to say if you're a local institution like mine, um, where we have like six manuscripts. And that's really exciting because when I started here, we had one um, and we've worked really hard to build our collection. But like where I did my postdoc has a lot more than six. Um, so what we perceive as incredibly valuable might just be work a day someplace else. And that has to be part of. So there's a continuum in our own time about what is valuable and where and to who. And then you stretch that across history and it gets to be this amazing thing where, you know, the Chaucers, the Shakespeare's, the Beowulf's, once they hit a value point, they stay there. But somebody like Hockleave, who's kind of on the edge of things, he goes in and out. Sometimes he's worth copying. Often he's not. Um, often we're seeing, you know, really interesting early Welsh manuscripts being photographed in the 1850s and not this like trashy Middle English book. Um, and for me, that was just really interesting because it helps us see how shifting reputation is and how those reputations are always helping us determine what we copy as we have a new form of copying. So what we digitize, how we don't, what's useful, what isn't. Um, Hockleave is also really fun for this because like the things that make him valuable and beloved for us today, make him kind of embarrassing. For <laughs> <writers>. yes, <laughs> like he's, um, he writes these very moody poems about himself. 
Um, like he writes about, you know, really wanting to fit in with his friends. So he's spending too much money and drinking too much. And like, he's chasing girls, but he's doing it to impress his friends and doesn't, you know, he's kind of scared of the girls. Um, later on, he writes about like depression um, and what looks from our perspective, like a mental breakdown that he has to kind of construct himself back from. Um, and all of these are the things that make us today love him. Like he's great to teach. Um, because I can put these things down in front of my students and be like, look, not so different from some of what you're dealing with. Um, but the late 19th century editors and the 18th century editors found him so embarrassing. Um, even as um, Frederick J. Furnival is sort of overseeing this new edition of Hockleaf's poems, the manuscript I'm studying, um, his introduction is saying things like, we wish he'd been a manlier fellow and like embarrassed by all of this. Right. Um, That's like the changing value. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it's about the value of the poems, but it's about so much more. It's about what's acceptable within gender. Um, it's about like what we value in other people. And that I also just find like riveting. Yeah, Absolutely. And I really liked how you detailed um, the the way that the, that specific manuscript changed ownership over time, because I think that was a model for, for me to think through, oh, how does the changing ownership of something also impact value? And even if it's, I mean, as you mentioned, in the space of a higher ed institution, that... Um, even institutions with similar size collections might value things differently based on research focus or pedagogical focus or status. Um, and yeah, ownership context also. Um, all of those factors are so fascinating. Well, and then like value. even, so we can see the ownership context with this manuscript because like um, in that late 19th century edition, um, there's no photograph. Like photography has been around for a while, but there's no photograph of this particular book. And there are lots of reasons and I go through like all of them. Um, but one of them is just that the place that owned it at the time that this edition was being made didn't allow photography uh, because they thought it lowered the value of the book. Um, so it's sort of like that library wouldn't allow that kind of access. And that was also concern about like what makes a thing valuable, what gives it worth. Um, and then to kind of see it in 2014, this wonderful team uh, at the Huntington and at UC Riverside actually um, decide not only do these things have value, but like we've got the money to put behind making this happen. Um, and that was a story that I didn't know about actually when I started thinking about writing about Hockleave and one of his manuscripts. Like I stumbled into that um, and to hear what. Um, uh, Andrea Denny Brown, who's a professor at UC Riverside, um, and Vanessa Wilkie, who's a curator at the Huntington, and then all of these other people at the Huntington made happen, was just like really thrilling to think again about institutional context and what's valuable and what matters and how do we make things happen, um, mm -hmm. and who do we care about ultimately? Yeah, Oof, absolutely. Yeah. Um. I mean, that, that kind of plays into my next question, which is about your third chapter, uh, where you're writing about digital incunables, um, tracing a lot of the early history of the internet and digitization projects. Um, and I 
really appreciated the point that while a manuscript will rarely be sold by an institution unless it needs money, um, the institution can stop maintaining a digital representation of that manuscript as time and standards and priorities change. Um, And I mean, this, I think, reflects what you're talking about with these institutions actually deciding to find the money and make a thing happen. Sometimes we see the flip side of deciding to no longer put the money into these projects. Uh, So even when when things get old, when the websites we built for the files that are no longer today's high quality, um, when they're looking a little shabby, why do you think it's valuable to maintain these projects and study them actually in the same way we would study physical manuscripts, kind of as, as these artifacts? Yeah, this is where my like pragmatic library postdoc self butts up against my like idealist humanities researcher self. Um, because the humanities researcher side of me is like, save everything. Everything is fascinating. If not to me, then someone. Um, but the like pragmatic thinking about resources side of me, um, I know not all digital projects can be maintained. Um, like Libraries have to weed their physical collections. That's just good stewardship. Um, and the same kind of stewardship holds for digital collections. Um, space is an infinite. Um, maintaining digital objects takes real time and money and expertise and labor. So like, I have to acknowledge that we have to pick and choose. Um, so that's one of the things I was kind of dealing with in writing this chapter um, because this because you know the same way that value is a continuum across space in the first chapter um, and time in the second chapter um, in this case we talk about digitization as though it's like you know it's the age of digitization it's just one thing um, and what we're able to do shifts and changes and what people even want to do shifts and changes and I just began to feel that I couldn't understand and write about manuscripts online without taking into account the different stages that this process has gone through. Um, And I'm a very concrete thinker. Um, I needed specific examples to wrestle with and grapple with. Um, So I wrote about uh, Digital Scriptorium in 1997 and um, this wonderful super wacky um, undergraduate-led digitization at the University of Victoria in the around 2000. Um, that was an amazing project to read about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and for me, part of it really is just the delight of wanting to tell these stories um, because sometime these will change. Um, the Digital Scriptorium group just got this wonderful grant and um, they're remaking DS and that's great. It's going to be so good. Um, But it does mean that this earlier project that was revolutionary in its moment, that changed so much, um, that modeled what manuscripts online could be and do and who they were for and what we could do with them, um, that will gradually vanish. And I don't think we can understand where we are without understanding those earlier stages. So, you know, at the time I wrote it to try to figure out why different manuscripts of The Fall of Princes, in my case, by John Lydgate, 
looked so different online. Like, why was the digital scriptorium copy so different from the University of Victoria copy, so different from the British Library's copy? Like, why? Why were these so radically different? Um, And I still think that's a really important question to have answered. But I feel like the other thing that I've done in writing these case studies is kind of preserved some of these things, preserved some of this evidence, because in a couple of years, you won't be able to go online and see what I saw. It'll be different. And that's great. But it also means that we're losing that history if we don't record it somehow. And maybe writing like mine is a compromise. Like you can't save everything, but some people can study and record and interview and relate. And then that preserves both what it used to look like, but who did all of that work? Like who are the foundational thinkers who have shaped what we can do in teaching and research and engagement now? Like who do we owe a debt of gratitude to because in the 1990s, they were like, oh, yeah, sure. We can use medical cameras to take pictures of medieval books. Why not? That's reasonable. Um, and I like knowing who I'm building on. I like knowing who I get to be grateful to. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely. really important. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a genealogy worth yeah. tracing. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, as you've mentioned, like, admittedly, not everything can last forever. It's a hard pill to swallow. Um, And so then in chapter four, you wrote about the complexity of metadata infrastructure and how ultimately a a digital project that um, has a ton of personal institutional investment might fail. Uh, It might go offline. It might actually never launch. And So at the same time, you share reminders of ways we might not be able to see the longer view of how these failed projects are still contributing to a larger global knowledge and a larger global infrastructure for building digital projects. They're the things that we are building on, even even though sometimes we don't know about them. Um, So how do you suggest we reconceptualize failure and success when speaking about digital projects? This is a a really hard question, Um, but I really like it. Um, That was, so if chapter two is sort of the hardest intellectually to wrap my head around, this chapter four is probably the most personally agonizing (laughs) of the chapters I wrote. Um, It's about just sort of the work that I did as a postdoc in data curation for medieval studies, Um, especially how I contributed to this much larger ongoing digital manuscripts experiment at the time um, called DMS index or the digital manuscript index. Um, And, you know, the first time I wrote it up, I was like, yes, we have found the way we have fixed everything. This is how it will be. This is our brave new future. I I was guilty of all that like techno utopianism that I kind of call out now. Um, And then it turned out that all the metadata I had just like, sweat and tears over um, wasn't actually published. Um, and so midway through revising this to have it be part of my book, I had to really grapple with like, what does it mean to have made a contribution that wasn't published? Um, 
what does it mean to have thought so long and hard about this and then find out that actually I was completely fixated on the wrong details and metrics for success. Um, you know, my, one of my two postdoc supervisors in this, Benjamin Albritton, um, I went back and forth with him a lot and I was like, Oh, I'm a failure. And he was like, Bridget, no, like we learned so much from that project and Stanford's not hosting it, but Biblissima is doing a lot of work based on it. And I started to see that the narrow metrics of success that I have measured my life in as a pre-tenure faculty researcher um, are utterly naive and narrow and kind of ridiculous for thinking about how digital projects grow and shift and cross-pollinate. So that was revelatory for me, but it also means that like your question about how do we reconceptualize failure and success is like, I don't really know because what I'm advocating for is kind of impossible under current academic assessment systems. And Absolutely. I mean, I, I really appreciated that you pointed that out and that maybe um, things like tenure um, reviews need to take into account things that happen over a much longer time scale than a single year of um, someone's academic work. Yeah. Um, and that's also a much more labor focused view. You know, in pedagogy, there's a lot of emphasis right now on process over product in terms of writing. Um, but I don't think we've gotten there for assessing ourselves and each other. Um, I don't think we, so many professional organizations have put out great guidelines for assessing digital projects. Um, but the sort of mix of actual people and committees, I think, carry that lone wolf researcher genius in the garret has to be published to have meaning mentality. Um, and the longer that I'm involved in sort of studying digital projects and, and doing them now, post-tenure, actually, um, I can see that they don't fit that one size fits everyone kind of institutional paradigm. Um, so I don't, I can't actually answer like, how do we reconceptualize it? I just know that we need to. Um so I'm, I've actually, I'm organizing a couple of panels on this topic at um, a conference in May um, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where all the medievalists gather in May. Um, and I'm building off of that. There's going to be a special issue on the subject of failure in the future of digital medieval studies. Because um, I really want, I've sort of like seen this as a problem and I really want to help collectively grapple with it and draw people together um, and really talk about this. So maybe I'm dodging your question, um, but I think like any good digital project, it's just too big for one person to swan in and declare a solution. Like this collective grappling, this public discussion um, is I think what we really need. Um, and so I'm really excited to be on this podcast because I feel like that's part of that. So right. we, it's it's keeping that conversation, making that conversation happen. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's where we have to start. And then probably, you know, a, a lot of people will be involved in, in making that shift happen, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And so those of us who kind of get through tenure can get onto those committees. We can work on it. Um, we can 
have lunch with colleagues and push evangelize our agenda. Um, But I think ultimately it also comes down to kind of thinking about what humanities researchers do. Like, how do we work together? Um, You know, for there's this wonderful article from 1974 called Computers and the Medievalist. Um, It's like all about collaboration and like big digital projects, um, although they don't call them that. Um, And they're saying like the next generation will do this and we'll we'll value like co-publishing just like the sciences. Uh, And then there's like a bunch of publications in the 90s that use the same language and say the same things. Um, And like we keep kind of saying it, but we don't do it. And I think our collective success um, and our happiness, to sound really earnest and cheesy, um, depends on it. Um, We find joy with ideas and community. And if we don't allow ourselves to work slowly and together in ways that defy productivity and narrow success failure definitions, then I, I think we hollow out what the humanities could and should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, after after those four, I guess, main chapters of your book, there's a coda, which you titled Glitch. Uh, and it gets back to some of the issues I think you've, you've introduced already um, about how, you know, these artifacts, um, these digital artifacts change. Um, you reflect on how version control can maybe strike a balance between providing seamless digital access to digitized manuscripts and also giving the information um, as physical manuscripts do on how interventions have been made uh, with the text. So how does, how does this advocacy for representing glitches tie in with your larger themes um, that we've talked about labor and collaboration? Yeah. So in some ways, this this coda was just a gift to myself because like when I first started studying manuscripts as a graduate student um, uh, in the English department at Stanford, I just fell in love with the errors because <laughs> that's where I feel closest to the people who were involved in making this book. Um, you know, the place where um, this 15th century academic is clearly in a rush and his handwriting's really bad, um, and he's copying pages out of order. And instead of going back and recopying and fixing it, it's just like hell with it, and draws a bunch of arrows and hands and labels to like tell himself how to get back through. Um, like that's those are those moments where I feel like a fellow feeling, human recognition. Um, these are people who are actually weirdly a lot like me, um, because if I were tasked with that same labor, I would make mistakes and I would do that. Um, and this is sort of like affection and gratitude in the errors for me, more more than in the perfection, which is a little odd. Um, and so then as I was studying these manuscripts, like working in chapter three on the British Library's copy of The Fall of Princes, um, and I found one of the scans was backwards, and I was just thrilled, um, because it gave me that same kind of feeling of seeing the people, um, and seeing those that continuum between um, medieval and um, digital copying cultures. Again, you know, this is 
one of those places where my like idealist humanities researcher teacher save everything intellectual hoarder self butts up against the training that thank God I got in libraries. Um, because again, you can't save every digital project. You certainly can't like save every single tiny copying error. Um, It becomes like self-indulgent to save the errors that you think are cute and that resonate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It is. Um, and, and it's, you know, for everyone who's like me, every one of me, (laughs) there are like decades of people who haven't noticed who haven't asked that's not the point for them who are really annoyed that one page is scanned backwards (laughs) well and you know as soon as I mentioned um uh, a missing page in uh the manuscript I helped scan in chapter one um the curator at Stanford who actually had been my postdoc super had been Ben Albritton he changed jobs and so he was still involved he emailed me immediately and was like great paper I'm pulling that book to fix it immediately (laughs) (laughs) because that's what from the library's perspective is important it's like a complete beautiful usable thing um so the compromise between like my hoarder self-indulgence cutesy I love all the errors and the like we could just fix it is um stealing from basic version control in um in software design like when you make an update you make a note that you made an update and that note of making an update gives us a place to see that labor to see the seams a little bit so even as we make the digital object more perfect we have a note of like who and when and what was fixed um and i feel like that's that's the kind of thing that can be added on um in a way that gives us those glimpses of the mess and the humanity um and the the real expertise that goes into making and maintaining digitized rare books um without the like nuts amount of labor and resources that like my fantasy land was obsessed with for a couple weeks there. Um, and the versioning notes are also then a note of collaboration. Like these are all of the people who worked on it. These are all of the, the experts um, who come together. And that comes back to medieval scribes for me. Um, Cause some of them write these notes that are like a thousand years from now, the person who is reading this, think of me, like I made this for you. And that's also true of digital objects. <laughs> Not that the last a thousand years, but that somebody's teams of people have made these for us. Um, and even if we don't know the teams by name, because I'm certainly not asking for like mandatory visibility, I want us to, uh, humanities researchers and users, I want us to have a much more honed and rigorous and generous understanding that there are real people who have worked really hard to make these um, and that, you know, ideally we exist in solidarity together. Absolutely. Um, after your coda, you then share a lot of your main arguments in a manifesto for doing <laughs> this. Uh, why did it feel important for you to include this manifesto and how do you hope it will be used? Um, well, in in terms of like, putting my own practice where my theory is. Um, that was actually a suggestion from my anonymous readers 
in the peer review process. Um, it was one of the only things they agreed on. Um, uh, one of them was like, you know, we just need a checklist. And the other one was like, give me a manifesto. So it's kind of both. Um, and I'm so glad that they suggested it because it, it was a way for me to kind of pull together these disparate points with all of this evidence and examples and details. Cause I love details. Um, but to boil it down into something useful, um, because ultimately kind of what I'm working out in digital code ecology is about a lot more than just these specific manuscripts and authors that I love, um, or even just medieval books. Um, it, it's about trying to kind of take the knowledge um, and the wisdom that I acquired when I was working in digital libraries and with librarians and digitization teams um, and trying to make it both much more broadly accessible to a wide range of students. And like a 300 page book is great, but what you really need for that is like two and a half pages of here's how you do it. And here's a couple concrete examples. Um, you know, I, I'm ultimately hoping that that's the part that gets downloaded the most from the ebook um, and used in classes. Um, and it, it just becomes this thing that we can use um, so that all of these moments that we don't get right about metadata and imaging and um, infrastructure and interfaces and all of that, that we haven't quite gotten right, we can do it. And it can just become a standard part of how we interact with these things. Um, you know, not everyone's going to want to do the kind of really extreme research that I've done. Like, I'm a medievalist. I'm trained to work with the dead. It was a real shock to the system to have to learn to talk to the living. <laughs> but, but what I've done is broadly extensible. Um, you know, these are methods that we can use to be smart um and and sort of generously minded so the manifesto is a rant and like a plea and a how-to manual like this is how we can do kindness and rigor combined amazing thank you um before we wrap up today um i would love to hear if there are any new projects you're working on things you're doing next uh maybe coming out of this work or whole brand yeah um, so coming out of this work, I uh, I owe a archive journal an overdue um, article about the Caswell test, um, which I uh, made up as an angry rant <laughs> in 2018, um, and is kind of a, a call to action for um, humanities researchers to be much more mindful of the labor and expertise of librarians and archivists when we talk about the archive. So that that's been backburnered for the book and now I need to just push through and do it. Um, the post tenure now, um, I can do collaborative digital projects. So, um, I'm working with a couple of people, um, the Ruth Carpenter, the digital scholarship librarian at my university. Um, and then, um, another medievalist, Megan Cook at a different school. And we're doing some image manipulation to like, tease apart layers of readers notes to figure out what somebody did to this weird story about a female Pope. Um, the biggest, most exciting thing I'm doing, I'd say, um, is early stages yet. Like we're still writing the grants to get the initial funding. Um, but I am getting to take what I learned about 
digital infrastructures and repositories, and I'm working with a medievalist at Cornell um, to create a OER, an open educational resource dedicated to primary sources about LGBTQ people in the medieval period, Um, because it doesn't exist. Um, We have all this great research. We have all these amazing sources. There are more sources than I could possibly teach with, but there are so many of them so hard to find. And so I'm ready to dedicate the next 15 years of my life to fixing the problem. Oh, that's exciting. Thank you. Cool. I'll have to keep my eyes peeled for progress on that. Yes, please. Um, well, Bridget, thank you so much for chatting today. Uh, and once again, my guest today is Bridget Werty, author of Digi- Digital Codicology, Medieval Books and Modern Labor, published by Stanford University Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New Books Network.